Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. As I'm preparing for the move to move back east, I was going through clothes because Joanne kept on me. She goes, you can't leave this to the last minute. So we're moving on. We're flying back at the very end of April. But I started going through clothes the other night. And I... I actually have lost weight because I had, when I got out of the hospital a few years ago, I'd lost a bunch of weight and I bought these jeans. And then for some reason, my waist size went back to my normal size. But now I've been watching what I eat. I haven't been drinking hardly at all. And I'm down to a 32 inch waist again. And for a guy 52, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. I mean, that's in college, I was a 33. So I'm feeling good about it. Anyway, we have a great show today, and I saw this talented woman uh, on a post from Jimmy Starr, who's got a very good show, uh, Dr. Jimmy Starr, who goes by, a friend of mine through Twitter, and I hit her up, and she was glad enough to do my show, and my guest is Liz Vassie. How you doing, Liz? I'm good. Congratulations on the weight loss. That's fantastic. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I never was, I was never heavy, but I just noticed I started putting some, uh, a little bit of bloat on. I'm just It was only like eight pounds, but for someone in my frame, that's a lot. And I was trying these jeans on because we're moving and, you know, you want to get rid of stuff. You know how it is. I mean, we accumulate. All humans yep. do, I think. I mean, and it's not that we're hoarders, just things accumulate. And I put these jeans on just to try them. I went, oh my God. It was like I went clothes shopping. I have like four new pairs of jeans so I can I can stop wearing the ones with the holes in them. <laughs> That's a fantastic thing. A lot of my jeans have holes in them. I don't think I can give that up, but that's a fantastic thing. I know it's great. So uh, now, now I want to talk about your career. Um, now you were you're from North Carolina. Yeah, that's where I was born. Okay, and now as a kid, I mean, when did you decide you wanted to act? I mean, I know you eventually acted as a teen, but as a child, were you precocious? Were you? I mean, what started this whole career for you? Um, you know, I had an acting teacher that said that it's rarely the precocious kids who go into acting. It was actually the opposite for me. Um, I was a pretty outgoing kid until I got uh, I got sick when I was two, and I was in the hospital for a long time. It was uh, it was a whole E. coli situation, and uh, I was in the hospital for a long time. And when I came out of the hospital, I was a shadow of my former self. I was very shy, um, and I had a hard time being around groups of people. And I saw my sister in a play. And I thought, okay, uh, maybe I'll try that. I have no idea why. I just thought it looked fun. And I ended up getting the part of Oliver in the musical Oliver. And they needed a girl to hit the high notes. And I got the part. And I fell in love with being on stage. I was nine years old. So you were nine. And you got the lead, which is cool. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. that, I mean, that's always a good thing. I mean, you know, so many, there's so many stories, you know, people going, oh, I played a tree. Or, you know, I played a rock. You know, like different things. When they audition, they get the... the part which saw it's still it's still in the production so at nine do you think you were hooked i mean what what happened oh i know i was hooked um i felt i felt more myself <laughs> playing somebody else than i had in a long time and my mom was absolutely gobsmacked like she she thought you know she was terrified her nine-year-old's getting up to sing on stage and she didn't know what that was going to look like um but once i was up there she knew that everything was going to be fine and then after that I'd say for the next five years, I was living in Florida at that point, and I performed 50 different musicals at uh, different uh, dinner theaters and community theaters around town. It makes you very popular in high school, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I, I, it's so funny because, well, well, it's just, yeah, so, you, but, so you were constantly working, and did you always, did, did you always feel like you had a good voice? 
Uh, yeah, I I was always happy with my my voice. My whole family can sing. I sang in church choir when I was a kid, and um, it was never anything that I doubted. I got in voice lessons when I was fourteen, and uh, I was always confident when I was singing. And it ended up getting me on a soap when I was sixteen because uh, they needed a character who could sing. They wanted her to sing at a club in Pine Valley, and so uh, I. I had met a manager in New York, um, and she said, fly up for this audition. So I did. And three auditions later, I was a series regular on All My Children. So you're, so you're in Florida. You're doing the uh-huh. dinner You're doing the, the dinner theater and all that stuff. And yeah. you can sing. And then you you meet an aide. Did you meet the, the manager randomly, or how did you meet the manager? What were you doing in New York? Um, I My mom has since passed away, but my mom was uh, perhaps the best mother for somebody in this business because she uh, was a mama lion. She would fight like hell, but she never, she never, she always told me to quit when it stopped being fun. Um, So it was never something that she pushed me into. And she asked me, she said, what is your dream? And when I was a kid, I said, I'd like to sing on Broadway. So uh, we had friends in New York. Um, they said, if you want to come up and use our apartment, you can. So my mom, uh, my mom and I flew to New York and stayed there for a month. And I met agents and managers, and uh, one of them signed me. And then I wasn't home very long after that in Florida when they said, come up and, and sing for all my children and read for all my children. And I did. Um, so it, uh, it, it was actually spectacular timing cause I ended up getting it. My mom and I moved to hell's kitchen in the middle of Manhattan, <laughs> fresh out of Tampa. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's quite, I remember cause the improv used to be in hell's kitchen and, yeah. uh, yeah, it, it and back like in the late eighties and, and it wasn't that good, nice of an area. No, it's completely gentrified. I go back now and it's a completely different place. And then after that, I moved to Alphabet City, uh, which was still Alphabet City when I was there. And now I go back there and there are kids throwing snowballs at each other. And I'm like, wow, this is a completely different world than it was when I was there. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was a, an education in life very quickly. So, so you got the All My Children. Now, when you auditioned, did you... What was going through your mind? Did you did you think, okay, you know, I'm going to get this part, or did you just think, okay, this is great, I'm auditioning? I mean, what was you know? Because at 16, you know, most I mean, I was just thinking, hope I don't get a D in geometry. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, I mean, what was what was going? What goes through a 16 year old's head when it, it's a soap opera and you're up there and it's great because your mom was behind you, so you had the support, which a lot of people don't have the support system. But I mean. Were you going in thinking, well, I've gotten this far? Or, I mean, what goes through a 16-year-old's head when it's an audition for a soap? And back then, soaps were giant. Yeah. they they Honestly, I think at 16, you're sort of uh, blessed and cursed with this hubris, um, which just, I, I guess you, you hmm. <laughs> this is not a funny answer, but it's an honest one. I think that you, um, I think that you believe the world is a meritocracy. And when you're 16 and you've done theater your whole life, you think, well, yeah, I've done a good job. I put in the work. I learned my lines. I should get this. And you don't realize you haven't seen the man behind the curtain at that point. So when you're 16 and you go and you read and you think you've done well, you think, okay, well, the way the world works is this. I did a good job, so I should get the role. Um, and you, you know, you grow up later and you find out, no, there's a lot that goes into it. But as a kid, I mean, I wasn't nervous. I just, I went in, I thought I will do a good job. And because I've done a good job, I will end up on the show. So, uh, I, and luckily for me, that one turned out. <laughs> and so you got the show now. So what's that like then all of a sudden 
you're on a soap. And, I, and, I, and I've heard, you know, from different soap actors that have been on the show before that it's you need to learn a lot of lines. And for you, must have been tough because you also had to deal with school, right? Well, I graduated a year early. Okay. Um, I, I actually left high school a year early. So that uh, that was taken care of because I was planning on going early admission to college. So um, I didn't have to do schoolwork at the same time. But there were, yeah, I mean, if, you're, if your storyline was heavy, you'd have 30 pages a day. But at the time, I mean, again, the joy of being 16, you don't know anything that's different. So at 16, you're like, okay, they hand me 30 pages. I guess I learned 30 pages. And you just do it. Um, but it, it was also, I mean, for me, it was pure magic because I got to live in New York. I got to be there with my mom. Uh, I've had a love affair with New York city since the first time I saw it. I love that city. Uh, I got to go see Broadway shows. I got to study with the best acting teachers. I got to, you know, it, it was a joy. I got, that was just bliss for me. Kelly, Kelly Ripa was my dressing roommate for God's sake. Like it was, it was a, it was a really fun experience. Now you, you get the part. And now, as I said, you know, it's funny, the soap opera fans are a very in crazy bunch. I mean, respect, I respect them. But I mean, I had Tal Pangos on my show and man, my Twitter feed blew up from like every 60 year old in in the country. Like, when's Tal? You know, and they saw me pitching them to do my show. What is it like for you? Did you start getting noticed? And at 16, how do you, I mean, once again, you're 16, we don't know that. And you said the hubris, but how do you handle that at a young age? Um, well, two things happened. First of all, I got I got just enough of a taste of fame. My mom, my mom always uh, drove home the fact that it wasn't real to me. Like she always, she I always knew that when people recognized me, that it wouldn't always happen. That I was lucky to be in a position where it did. I, my mom was she kept my head on straight, you know. So um, I think the cool thing about being on a soap at that age, if I went into a room with a hundred people. Maybe two people would go nuts and be like, oh, my God, it's Emily Ann. And 98 people are going, who is that? And it, it basically sets you up for the rest of your life. You know, it's sort of a it's an ego check because you're like, well, those people know who I am. And these people have no idea. It's a, it's a very specific demo. Um, and that demo takes it really seriously because my character, she cried nonstop. I mean, my biological father was a pimp. My biological mother was a prostitute. My uh, stepmother was a prostitute and my stepfather had a gambling addiction. So I cried a lot on that show and I married somebody that everybody loved and I was very mean to him. So people would come up and be like, why are you being so mean to Joey? And I I'd have to explain and like, you know, and I'm in a Dwayne Reed going, no, it's not. I mean, they're just lines that they're giving me. So uh, it was, it's a very peculiar experience because people take those stories very seriously. How, how did you make yourself cry? Uh, you know, you get your own bag of tricks. I, I didn't ever use the spray stuff. It happens so often on soaps that you just get used to okay. it. Honestly, I think you just, I think your tear ducts, they get such a workout. It's like any other muscle. I think it's like, yeah, here we go. We're going to do it again. Um, because yeah, crying is very big on soaps. Now, now when you're on the soap, you also, you won a soap opera award, right? Uh, I was nominated for an Emmy and, um, it was funny cause I, I went to the Emmys with the cast and, uh, and I was 16. It was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And I was very justifiably beat out by somebody else in the cast who, uh, was a good friend and is a good friend, Katie McLean. Um, she played Dixie 
and she she was terrific. And the two of us had the right mindset going in. It's just sort of like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's really it's an honor to be nominated. Literally, it, I know people say that, but it's true. And um, and Katie Katie's great. So uh, it's you know we I, I give her uh, I give her good natured crap for beating me for that. <laughs> now, as you as you're doing the soap, do you feel that your acting is you're evolving, you're growing as an actor because you're doing your craft, but once again. I always say, you know, you went from doing musical theater, but I guess soap operas is pretty much you got to nail it on one take. I'm guessing it's not like TV now where they do 57 takes because it's such a tight schedule every day. But did you feel you were growing as an actor at that age? Uh, that's a really good question. Yes, I think it's the best training. I, I think it's the very best training because suddenly I'd gone from being on stage and I had a camera in my face. You know, I, I had to get used to having a camera close. And it, it forces you to make the camera your friend which sounds like a weird way to put it, but um, my husband's a cameraman, and it's one of the first things I said to him about it. I think, you know, as an actor, you, you have to make the camera your friend because it's there. So um, you get really used to having it right there in front of you. And the other thing is, like I said, you know, I started going to classes religiously. Like, I, I started taking a lot of acting classes and, and studying classical theater. Um, to I, I wanted to actually learn the craft and, um, and learn it on camera and also... Uh, learn it with teachers and there's you know New York's one of the best places to go for that now all my children I didn't watch it I watched General Hospital in college in days of our lives in college I'll admit it but um, what happened to your character and what made you and, and then what made you leave um, well everybody you know Everybody's scared of the bus crash. I didn't die in a bus crash, but like, there's always the joke on a soap set that you open the next script, and if there's a bus crash, you flip through that thing pretty fast to see if you were on the damn bus because your contracts are um, cyclical. You can basically get fired every so many weeks. Uh, I'm telling you, it's a nerve-wracking place to work. So um, what happened to me, everybody in my storyline started getting written out. I was like, uh -oh, I, I, I know I'm up, and, uh, and I was right. But what they did was they, um, it was the end of my two-year contract, and, uh, oh God, now what happened? I got pregnant on the show, I lost the baby, I went nuts, uh, and I tried to kill the woman that my husband, I thought, was having an affair with, and then I got carted off to a mental institution. <laughs> I ended up in a mental institution. Okay, well, that, that's better than dying. At least that, that, and at least, you know, maybe down the road, you know, oh, maybe we'll bring her back. You know, she's, she's, she's not nuts anymore. Yeah, exactly. Maybe Emily Ann got fixed. <laughs> we can hope. <laughs> so now, so you're, you this, you leave the soap. You're so you're probably what eighteen or nineteen. Yeah. You have you're a professional actor. I mean, you know, you, besides doing the theater, you know, so you've got probably skills of someone who's been doing acting a lot longer. Probably have like the skills of like a twenty five or twenty eight year old actor because with all your your experience. Now, what do you do? Do you sit there and say do you stay in New York? What is your mom? Does your mom have input on which way your career goes? Or what did you want to do when you left the soap opera? Did you sort of feel it was a little bit of a a new lease on life because now you could go for different roles? Or, I mean, where was your head at? Uh, I was sad to leave, but I also have sort of I have a life view that I think uh, I think a lot of things push you in the right direction, and I think it's really easy to get complacent. So sometimes I think what's looked at uh, as a slap in the face ends up being a big kick in the ass and you end up moving on to another part of your life. Um, and 
you know, again, at 19, you just go, okay, what's next? Uh, and my mom, uh, she was, look, I mean, I, by the time I was in my 30s, I, she was still somebody I trusted implicitly to tell me what she thought about different things. And, you know, I mean, she, she's, she's my best friend. I like, I, I, so I definitely was open to everything that she thought. We had taken one trip to California, and I fell in love with Los Angeles. I had friends who were out here. So uh, it was the next logical move, I thought, because at 19, like you said, I'd come from a lot of experience. So I thought, well, I, got, I, should, I should try, um, which is interesting, because initially I told some people in New York that, and, and some first responses was, there were some first responses where that I, I didn't look like a California girl. I'm not blonde. I don't have blue eyes. And it's, uh, it's just funny, because I always thought, well, maybe that'll be a good thing. Um, and, uh, I moved out here when I was 19. I, I hadn't driven a car since driver's ed in high school <laughs> and I'd been in New York and I got a horrible story, but I, I, get, I, I, I passed the driver's license test and I got behind the wheel of a car. I was like, well, I guess I'm driving a car now. And, uh, I, I set up shop here in LA and my mom lived with me for the first six months and then she moved away for work and, and then I was here on my own. Now, did you find an agent right away? Or did you have the same representation from what you were from New York, or how did that work? Uh, same representation, which was great. I, I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate because there's a catch twenty two that happens with a lot of people when they start out here. Um, they want to get an acting job, and people want to see their tape, and they want to. And it's like, well, well, I'm eighteen, I don't have tape, and it's like, well, you can't get an agent without getting tape. Well, okay, but how do you get tape? Well, your agent sends you up for auditions. Right. Like, what are you supposed to do? And I, I really lucked out. I was so fortunate because I had two years of tape. Um, so I, I had done a lot, and my agents were uh, more than happy to start sending me out for pilot seasons. Now, did you get lucky in the beginning? And how, how did your booking start off? Did you get some pilots? I mean, because looking at your resume, you were regular in a bunch of series and you know, you've, and you've, it's funny because you've jumped from sitcom to, to, um, drama, which I think that also happens a lot with people who have a theater background because theory, you play everything. But did you, did you get a hot, did you get a hot streak in the beginning or did it take you a little time to start getting work when you came out here? I, again, was incredibly fortunate. My mom and I uh, were grateful for every second. I, I, I remember the very first day. I got two jobs in one day. What were um, It's it, uh, a Tide commercial and uh, an episode of Jake and the Fat Man. Oh, man, that, that's <laughs> that's like classic. I mean, you know. I know. I, I ended up doing uh, two episodes of that as different characters. And, um, yeah, I had gone up for a Tide commercial, and, uh, and I'd gone up for this episode of Jake and the Fat Man. I think I had four lines or something. And I remember getting the call that I got the episode, and I remember my mom tearing up because she was so happy I, I had gotten work because we really had only been out there out here for a, a little bit over, I don't know, a couple months, I guess. Um, and then I got the call right after that I'd gotten a Tide commercial, and, my, you know, we were thrilled because that was a definite sign that things were going to be okay. Um, so yeah, I remember that day so clearly. Yeah, it was, it was pretty great. <laughs> so you get, you got, you get, you're, you're off to a hot, hot start and you start booking stuff and then uh, you ended up on ER, right? For a few episodes. Um, yeah, that was an interesting thing. I, I had shot a pilot the night before, um, that, uh, was kind of funny. It was called pigsty and it was from some of the guys that created cheers and it was great. It was a really fun show and we were up for a place on the NBC schedule and we got beaten out by a little show called friends. So we ended up on UPN, and um, I had shot the pilot, and I was so tired because it takes a long time to shoot a pilot, and I had this audition for this hospital show the next morning, and I, I was so exhausted, 
and I went in and I got it and then I went to work and it, I swear to God, it took me the entire scene. I finally went home and I was just so exhausted at that period of my life. I went home. I was like, Oh my God, that's Goose from Top Gun. I just worked with Goose from Top Gun for like, like it didn't even even register. It was a very busy time. Um, And then they kept me coming back for a while on ER, which was really fun. And it was a really fun character who was a bit nuts. And uh, it was uh, was a great, it was a great thing. So you're doing that. And the pigsty was actually Rob Long's been on my show. He's a very talented guy who did create a pigsty. Um, yeah. what was, what was that like for you? Cause now you're doing a sitcom, you know, cause you, you know, you're, you're getting, you know, ER is very, you know, heavy, might we say, uh, what did you, were you excited to start doing comedy, like being a regular in a sitcom? I was excited to be a regular on anything. I mean, I, I remember walking through the halls past my dressing room and I just kept thinking, you know, you're, you're really lucky. This is a very lucky place to be. Um, and again, you know, I, I give that to my mom. Yeah, she she taught me how to be grateful. Was it? But it's an incredible experience because um, I'd never done one of those really before. I'd done some guest spots on sitcoms, but I'd never been a regular in one. And uh, it's terrific. I mean, you laugh all day. You do the run throughs. You get the audience in there. It's like doing a little play. And uh, I loved the guys I was working with. So uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty joyous time. So you're you're on a hot streak. I mean, you know, you look at your career. You're you're on you're it's it's you're on a good streak, and then now and then you end up on Brotherly Love. Now, what was that like? Because you know, like like I remember, like Joey Lawrence was like the dude back then, like the off blossom when he was like, whoa, you know, you're, what, what? How did that show come about? The biggest, well, it it came about because I played a superintendent on Pigsty, and I was walking around in overalls all the time. I mean, honestly, in the '90s, I felt like I was the '90s answer to Joe Polnicek from um, from Facts of Life. Like I was, I I was that character. So I basically was walking around with a wrench uh, of some sort all the time and a smudge of oil on my nose, everywhere. Like that was my character. So I did that in um, Pigsty, and then uh, Brotherly Love came along because there was another woman cast in the pilot, but she was cast in second position to something else. So her other show took off. She had to leave Brotherly Love. So NBC said, "Hey, uh, since Pigsty is going away, you want to come do this for us?" Um, which was sort of momentous because that is a really nice thing to have one show canceled and have somebody say, "Hey, you want to come do this?" So I start working on Brotherly Love, and the Lawrence family is terrific. But I'm telling you, it was the funniest thing to do those uh, tapings because the audiences were predominantly young women who were nuts for the Lawrence boys. So my character's name was Lou. So, you know, you come out for the bow before you even start. Like, you come out just to say hey to the audience. So people would be like, Andy, Andy. He'd come out, Matt, Matt. He'd come out, Joey, Joe. And then, like, there'd be one dude in the back who would go, Lou. And then I would bow. I always had one person in the audience. Um, which was kind of fun. I'd never worked with, uh, I'd never really worked with guys who were like rock stars before, and it was very funny. Yeah, those guys, and they were a giant. And then it was just funny because uh, Joey Lawrence went bald, and I said that's because yeah. I used to have hair like Joey Lawrence, and I'm bald too. So I think what it is is us guys who use too much Tenex and product when we, to get our hair looking good. I think it all falls out. I think that's a secret. Ah, uh, I think you both look damn good that way. <laughs> so you're doing that now. Now, when do, when do you feel you start getting out of those roles of the girl with the overalls and a wrench and a smudge of oil? When do you feel you start growing out of those roles? And what part of your career was that at? 
Um, actually, it was my favorite job ever. Uh, it was a show that I did after Brotherly Love called Maximum Bob um, that was based on an Elmer Leonard novel, and Bo Bridges played uh, a judge named Bob. Um, and Barry Sonnenfeld was directing it and producing it, and I went in and read for him, and he took a real chance. Like, he, he took a real chance, because he cast me. I was too young for the role. Um, he cast me as a lawyer, as a kick-ass lawyer, an Elmer Leonard kick-ass lawyer, and I flew um, to Florida, and I shot that show, and I, I would have happily done that show for 20 years, given the opportunity. I loved everything about it. I thought it was, uh, Alex Ganza was um, the writer, and uh, now he does Homeland. So he's obviously crazy talented. Um, the cast was, was really amazing. Kirsten Warren played uh, Bo Bridges' wife. Um, Sam Robards played the uh, detective. I mean, yeah, he was... Was he a detective? I know he was like a, a deputy. Um, it, it, it was an incredible cast. And uh, I felt like I, you know, I got to be the lead of a drama. And it was a pretty incredible experience. This is, that's like, you know, and, and I, I believe it was created by Jonathan Schmock and uh, Valley. Valley, no. Did they? Uh, in Valley, yeah, they created uh, yeah. Brotherly Love. Yeah, oh, the Brotherly Love, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. But uh, how did like Maximum Bob, like for an actor, when you have such a stellar cast and it's based on an Elmore Leonard, which, you know, his movies always do well. When you go into that, do you think it's going to have a long run? I mean, when you look at that cast, and, you know, as you said, and the guy who created is now running for Homeland, so you know he has chops. What is it like for an actor when you go in and you get in a part and then it, the show doesn't last? Was Were you a little pissed or were you upset or how did you feel? Um, I was very sad. I was very sad because, first of all, I thought it was very good. I know it was very good. It was just a very good show. Uh, and I, I think it deserved better. Um, but, I mean, I you know, I was talking about this with my friend today. This is something that you struggle with in this business. And you, you either get used to it or you just quit. Because you don't have a lot of control in how long, how long things are going to last. And it's not always the best shows that do. Uh, and the best people don't always get the roles. And sometimes they do. And, so, you know, and, and by the way, sometimes that person who's not the best for the role is you like I know I've beaten out people who were better for a role than I was it's just it's a strange business so um my advice to people is get used to it or get a different job you know it's because it, it's it's a series of these things like I did a couple series after Maximum Bob that should have had longer lives that each went for six episodes and it's just what happens so you're you're now you're growing as you said you know you're you've got the lawyer role which you know as you said that he took a chance and you were younger than the part. So now you've somewhat shot to a different level in your career because you're not getting cast as the, you know, the, the wrench girl, we'll call you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, and then, then you ended up on the tick. What was that like? Because, you know, I mean, it's now you go from a drama and you're going back to a, a funnier series. I mean, how did you, do you have to get psyched for that or are you, you know it's going to be a different kind of show. Where do you go when you do something like that? I mean, where's your mind at when you go from a drama to a comedy? Well, it was Sonnenfeld again. So, first of all, I, I think he's uh, an amazingly talented director, and he always finds comedy and drama and drama and comedy. So uh, it didn't feel like a big tonal shift. Obviously, it was. But working with him, he just he, he's a, a really easy director to work with. And... Um, I, I trusted him implicitly, and I always know I'll be at my best doing something with him. So uh, I just went into it very happy to work with him again. Um, the costume made me laugh a lot. Uh, <laughs> I had this whole idea. I said, okay, we can put me in this costume with the star in the chest, 
But I think every subsequent season this goes, the star has to get smaller. And finally, by season seven, I'm just wearing a necklace with a friggin' star <laughs> as a little charm because I couldn't imagine wearing that costume for seven years. Um, but it was uh, it was cool. I'd never done a cult show. I'd never I got an action figure out of it, which was pretty much a life goal. Um, so, uh, it was, it was really fun. And, and those guys, I mean, I love that cast. I was just, uh, I'm in touch with Patrick a lot. Nestor and I are back in touch. We just, uh, had both gotten busy and gone in opposite directions. We're now emailing again. I mean, they're just, they're just great guys. So you're acting and I'll, I want to talk about CSI and all that, but when do you start doing the writing? Cause I know you, you, that's what you've been concentrating on. I know you wrote an episode of CSI, but when you were acting as a, did you always pay attention to the scripts was, or was writing something you always did? Or when did, what, what part of your career did you really start focusing on writing? Um, I, when I was a kid, before I even started acting, I used to write all the time. Like my poor parents, I would make these little uh, books and I would bind them with scotch tape and I would give them to them. And um, writing was always something I toyed with on the side. I think, uh, I think around the time of The Tick, I uh, got the rights to a book with a dear friend of mine, and we wrote a script based on the book, and we sold it to Imagine Entertainment. And I said at the time it was the best money I ever made because uh, I, I literally made the money. Like if I hadn't sat down, if I hadn't gotten the rights to the book, if I hadn't adapted it, then that script wouldn't have existed. So it's when I started learning that it's really fun to create um, and it, it started to become more fun for me to create than to interpret somebody else's creation. Um, obviously, there are great sides to both. It's just when you've been doing something since you were nine, something else starts to look a little more fun, something different. Um, and so that's when I started getting into it. Uh, and I I sold, just a couple years after that, I sold an idea with a writer friend of mine, um, with Barry Sonnenfeld attached. I sold an idea uh, to a studio. So I was starting to get into it before I, I got on CSI. Now, now, how did you, well, when you, the first book, how did you decide that's the book you wanted to write and get to do the movie for? And where did you, did you take a screenwriting class? I mean, everyone always says read Sid Field's book or read this. How did you, I mean, I guess because you were around scripts all your life, you already knew the formatting, so you had that going for you. But what made you decide for that first book? Was it just something that you, were a big fan of the book or just something in the story drew you to it? Um, there's a, a guy that I met actually on Maximum Bob, an actor, and uh, I've, I've called him my gay husband for years, and um, it just was our relationship. We read this book and went, oh my God, it's us. So we, uh, we immediately wanted to uh, adapt it. We met the author and he said, sure, take it, run with it. I mean, he, like, he let us run with it for uh, several months. He said, you can have it for free for this amount of time. So we did, and we wrote a script and then, and then sold it. And I guess, I mean, I, I hadn't taken screenwriting classes uh, at that time. I'd read a lot of books about it, but honestly, the biggest thing for me was just after reading, like you said, after reading so many scripts, you start to intrinsically understand uh, how they flow and how to structure them and what it means that the act breaks and what the act breaks have to entail. Like, you just, you just sort of get it on a certain level, and since then I've studied it more, but... Um, but you know, it was a, it was a valiant first attempt. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Oh, you sold it. I mean, God, that's that's awesome. Now, a quick question uh, about these days, because you've written projects and you've and you've uh, sold projects. Do writers on the shows you work on now are they a little intimidated because you're more than just an actor? You're a writer, so you know. I mean, 
you you take the work you get, but if you look at a script and there's something wrong, you you probably know why it's not working. Do you have you had any like encounters with writers about this, or are they are they happy that you actually do know how to? Um, I gotta say, most of the writers that I've worked with, and I'm and I am exactly the same way. If there's a suggestion that it makes something with my name on it better, I'm gonna take it. So, um, like when I even when I was on CSI, the writers were always very open to uh, to any of us coming in and going, look, I just don't feel like my character would say that, or I feel like this is a weird direction, or maybe we could do a little more of this. Um, so they were always very open and uh, and very gracious about it, uh, which I realize is, is lucky, because I, I can imagine it's not always like that, but um, it, it was pretty easy for me on that show. Now, how did CSI come about? Because that was, you know, I mean, that was, and it's lasted for, that show was on forever. I mean, was that just an audition, or I think, did you come on the second season, I believe? No, I came on in season six, but it was crazy, because the year before that, um, you know, when you go to network tests during pilot season, basically, if you read for a pilot and the producers like you, they call you back, and they usually work with you, and then they call you back, and they do what's called a test deal, and they set up how much money you're ostensibly going to make for the next five to seven years. You sign your life away, and you test against probably three or four other women, you know, like a bunch of people read for it, but you test against three or four other women who've gotten as far in the process as you have. You go in front of the whole studio in their suits. They like you or they don't like you. The ones that they like, they then send to network, and you do the same thing in front of the network suits and the studio suits, and it's a very weird experience because so much is riding on those five minutes. And it's really uh, stressful. And the season right before I got on uh, CSI, I tested 15 times. And I got a pilot for about a tenth of my money quote, because at that point I was like, I don't care, I just want one. And, um, and it didn't go, it didn't get picked up. And then the CSI audition came along, and at first the character wasn't anything like me, and I, I turned down the audition, and they said, my manager, I can't do this. Like I, I'm, I, I'm tired, and I, I was just, I was, I was tired of auditioning, and uh, I wanted to take a break. And lucky for me, the CSI people kept going. Okay, no, 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 but can she just come in because we can make this more right for her? Um, and I put myself on tape, and my husband's a cameraman, so that that worked out well. Uh, and I sent in a tape, and they said, "Look, we'll set this up. She can come in and meet the producers, and, and we're going to try and make this happen." And then, uh, very lucky for me, it did. Now, where did you meet your husband? Did you meet your husband on a show? I met him on a Tommy Lee Jones movie that we shot in Austin. And, uh, yeah, it was a movie about Tommy Lee Jones protecting a gaggle of cheerleaders in the Witness Protection Program, and I played Tommy Lee Jones' partner. And I, my costume was a Texas Ranger outfit, uh, so I, I looked like a gigantic piece of uh, nugget with some chocolate. Uh, that would be my hat, basically. But the rest of it was like nugget. And I thought, wow, that cameraman is so cute. And I thought, it's a shame I'm dressed like a gigantic piece of nougat. And um, we, uh, we, we met briefly. I uh, had been in a long-term uh, relationship right before that that we'd just broken up. So I thought, ah, I'm not even interested in a real relationship. And he had just been in one. Um, and we started writing each other back and forth. And it was pretty clear after the third or fourth email that we would probably be together uh, forever. Um, we ended up getting married six months to the date that we met. Uh, uh, and it's been 12 and a half years. So wow, that's so cool. Now, did you, did you did you guys work together after that ever? No, they asked him to shoot a pilot I did called Nikki and Nora, and I asked him not to because I was playing uh, one half of a lesbian couple, 
And I said, you know, the last thing I need is to see my husband's smiling face behind the camera. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter if it was a lesbian or straight. I was like, you know, it's just not easy to see your husband's face while you're kissing somebody else, male or female. So I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you can always hold it over your head. Hey, well, at least I wasn't kissing someone at work. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, then we get into the then we get into the two and a half men. Yeah, that was. Uh, <laughs> he hates watching me kiss other men. So he, you were in Two and a Half Men a few times. Yeah, four and, times. And now, did you play two or three different characters? Uh, I played two different characters. Okay, now. Um, yeah. Now, how did that, how did that come about? You coming back as another character because shows really don't do that anymore. No, well, Chuck Lorre gets to do whatever he wants. Basically, I think he kind of earned that. Um, he he did something called Dharma and Greg, and I'd auditioned for a guest spot years prior to Two and a Half Men. I auditioned for a guest spot, and he made me come back and read for it again. I had just met him. I didn't get the role, and then they let go of the girl who did get the role and called me in two days later and said, can you come in and just do this? So I gave him uh, heaps of crap for years about that. Like, you know, you, you didn't pick me first, but uh, you picked me finally. So we ended up becoming friends, and um, Two and a Half Men came along, and I, I read for it that first season, and uh, he uh, liked the way that Charlie and I got along. Um, Char- Charlie was actually great to work with. Uh, Everyone you know. says that. Everyone says he's just a really cool cat. It's just I think it's, you know, it's the TMZs and the stuff like that that really – come down because you know I used to wait tables at Planet Hollywood in Vegas and Charlie would come and he would get hammered and but no one talked about it it was just Charlie being Charlie no one said you know it wasn't air blown to the press and I've always heard he does so much charity work too that people don't know about and I think it sucks because you know you're like you and so many other people have said you know he was just great to work with yeah, well, I mean, everybody is, uh, is shades of gray, and I, um, I I would never deny that he's troubled. Uh, I think everybody is in their own ways, and I also think if somebody does a bunch of TMZ stories about one aspect of your life, with yeah, without shining lights on the others, then then that's a shame because uh, he's multifaceted as are the rest of us. But he 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 was great. I mean, he was great. He's one of my favorite people to uh, to work with. I I enjoyed being on set with him. So I want to talk about CSI more, but before we do, I want to talk about your documentary. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm excited. Are, are, have you always been a documentary fan? Are you someone who enjoys documentaries? Or what made you get into this avenue? Because you write and you do this and now you're doing, I mean, you're, you wear a lot of hats, it seems. What made you decide to come, it's called The Human Race, right? Yes, it's and, called the Human Race. Uh, we are smack in the middle of an Indiegogo campaign um, to uh, to crowdfund it, and it's uh, it was interesting because I'm I'm a runner, I'm an avid runner, and uh, like I said, my mom passed away, and it was 2012, and running helped me get through it. Um, it was you know it was horrible, and running helped me every morning. I would get up and it and it uh, it helped me in ways I didn't even imagine. It helped me mentally in a big way, and. Um, I just arbitrarily one day I sat down and I thought, you know, I wonder if there's an age where people quit. Like, when do I decide I'm going to start speed walking? Like, when is that age? And I realized, I started reading stories about people in their 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s that are still running marathons. Yeah. And um, it's it's crazy. And then I started reading about uh, a doctor named Dr. Freeze who sounds like a Marvel supervillain, but he's not. But Dr. Freeze, he did a, an experiment. Um, it was 15 years, and he took 500 runners and 500 non-runners all over the age of 50. And by the end of 15 years, he found out that the runners, which it could be any type of athlete, but in this case it was runners, 
the runners were half as likely to die of any cause prematurely. Uh, they were less likely to need knee replacements. Um, their ligaments were stronger. Their joints were stronger. And it was, it was such an astounding thing for even him to realize how good it is for you to get moving and how much more capable you can be in your 80s if you take care of yourself on the road up your 80s. Um, and I thought that was worthy of a documentary. I mean, also because I live in Los Angeles and it's an ageist city. And I think to show a 65-year-old kicking ass, like I, that to me is really cool. I think that's a message that uh, America needs more of. <laughs> so, so you have this idea... So, and you found out this doctor, and it's funny because I have a girl I went to high school with when she was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, her husband started running marathons and he's like ran like marathons in every state. And then she runs with them now. And so, and she's, I'm 52, so she's, you know, started later too. And uh, yeah, she's always posting stuff. So there's a lot of people that run out there. How do you decide who, I mean, you, you have this idea for a documentary about runners over 50. Now, how do you start to find out who's going to be in it? I mean, how do you do the research? And, you know, because there's, as you said, there's thousands of runners. I mean, where do you start? It seems like such a big task to find who you're going to do the documentary about. Uh, We actually haven't decided who's definitely in it right now. We shot a proof of concept video, like a trailer, um, to to take around. And we met... uh, a friend of a friend runs a running club in Tampa and it has 4,000 members and a lot of them are over the age of 50. So we met a lot of them. We talked to a lot of them and we picked a handful that we thought were pretty fascinating. And some of them will be in the uh, the final documentary. But I got to tell you, since I started talking about this and I'm tweeting about it and it's getting out there, uh, writers, I mean, runners are finding me. So um, like there's a runner in Australia who's contacted me. Um, there are runners all over the country who have asked if they could be in it. So uh, ultimately, you know, like any documentary, we're going to shoot way too much footage. Uh, we're going to shoot a bunches and bunches of people, and then we'll see which stories move us the most, and we'll concentrate on five of them. Now, your husband's working on this with you, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so now, what's that? What is, I mean, it, it, did you guys both have the creative process for this together, or was it your idea? Or what is it? Uh, will you look for his input? And as you said, for a cameraman, for a camera operator, for a documentary – you probably are going to shoot so much, so much footage. Uh, my husband, um, he he's a he's a pretty badass camera operator. Like he does any any big movie you've seen with anything blowing up or with robots in it, or or you know, he he probably did it. So he he's really good at shooting action. So basically, anything that has to do with the camera. I mean, I have ideas of how I want things to look, but. Uh, Man, he's good. Um, so I'm really lucky to have him. And anything about story, um, you know, we defer to each other in the right areas. Uh, so, and and we both respect each other. Like, it's it, we're lucky. We have very similar taste. So we have uh, we have similar ideas about what we want this to look like. Now, do you know the whole how the whole story is going to unfold? I mean, do you do you have do you attack this like you when you write a script? Do you have plot points? Because it's documentary. It's different than, you know, first 40 pages, you know, intro, then resolution, then whatever. How are you attacking this in, on the creative side? How are you putting this together in your head? Uh, well, it's still the hero's journey. You know, you take the person and the person goes on a journey and there are obstacles that get in their way and they hopefully overcome those obstacles and they learn a little something about themselves in the process and hopefully uh, conquer the final obstacle and end up in a different place. So... Uh, I look at it, we're going to follow five runners doing five different races, 
it's going to be the biggest race that each has done in his or her lifetime. So it's going to be a 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon, and ultra marathon, which is 100 miles. And we'll meet these people. And some of the people that we've already met and talked to, um, one person is running through cancer treatment. One person is running to uh, deal with the death of his wife. Um, these people are, are dealing with very real issues. So we're going to watch them train and get to know them as they're doing this. We're going to see uh, the catharsis that running gives them. Um, and then hopefully watch them succeed and, and, and kick ass in a race that they've never attempted before. And now what's the uh, indie – give the listeners the Indiegogo the, the link. And Well, you're on Twitter too. They can find it on Twitter. But give the listeners the Indiegogo link. If you go to Indiegogo and just type in the human race, uh, it will come up. Um, or you could follow me. I, I tweet a lot about it. And I'm at Liz Vassy. Um, which is probably the easiest thing to tell you. So I, I would say those two, at Liz Vassy, or just go to Indiegogo and type in The Human Race. Okay. I wanted to talk about, now I want to get back to CSI because it was such a huge show. But I know we have to talk about that because it's, it's probably a real labor of love for you too. It's something that, you know, it's your idea. I mean, it's probably intimidating, not intimidating, but it's sort of, it must be for the, for this documentary, it's got to be exciting, but it must be a little, a little intimidating. Not intimidating. I can't think of the word because you are showing other people, and you want to get your message apart across. It's it's certainly different. It's a challenge. I'll put it that way. I mean, I've also never done crowdfunding before. Which honestly, I have friends who've done it, and they've told me how exhausting it is. And I always partially believe them. And now, now I get it. It's like another full time job. I, I am. I am telling you, that is just that is a big boulder to push up a hill. Uh, um, so that's that's been an education in and of itself. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it is just a challenge. I just believe in the message so much, and um, I believe it's such a good message to put out there. And and again, I I just think our society. Well, one of the only countries that does this with with older people. You know, I mean, other countries revere older people, and we tend to think that people have an expiration rate and uh, expiration date in this country. And I, I think that is uh, unfortunate. So anything I can do to fight that, I think, uh, uh, is is important, which outweighs any trepidation that I have. And people, just so you know, if you go, she has some really good giveaways. There's a Jim Beaver past Cooper Talk Gas. It's a supernatural signed picture by Jim Beaver, who's a tremendous actor. And you, you have some good, some good swag on here. Some good art. You got a Hasselhoff picture. You got, <laughs> you got stuff going on here, man. I'm telling you. I would hit up every one of my friends on every show ever. Um, it's, <laughs> it's my office is hysterical. It's like, well, there's a stack of Nathan Fillion pictures. Oh, look over there. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. It's like, well, there's a Hell on Wheels DVD. I'm Everybody I've ever worked with, I've hit up for stuff. Did you work with the Hoff? Uh, no, but I hit up another friend who had, and so uh, I am I am directly connected to, or one degree of separation from everything that's on there. Good people, so you, you just do it for the Hoff. I'm saying, you know, just do it. <laughs> okay, so, so now about the and uh, uh, CSI. When you're in CSI, you went on in on you said in the sixth season. Yes. So what is it like to become, you're coming on, I know that cast changed a lot over the years, but what is it like to be like the new person on a set on an already established show that is getting great ratings, so you know you're going to be coming, you know, you know it's going to be around for a while. What is that like? Is it like being a new kid in school when you transfer to a new school or, I mean, what is that feeling coming onto a set like that? Uh, yeah, it is a little like that. I mean, in the first place, uh, I was only at that point thinking I was going to do two episodes. Um, so I was going to recur. I mean, I thought maybe it'll grow into something bigger, but I, I knew I was new. I also knew that they'd gone through a lot of lab techs. 
so I didn't I didn't know how long it was going to last. Um, but much like the first day of school, I think it depends on who befriends you first. And my first scene was with Mark Helgenberger, who like you know <laughs> she's she is just ridiculous. She's so kind. Um, she is a good friend to this day. Uh, there aren't enough nice words to say about her. I mean, she's a broad. She is tough and funny and cool and interesting and smart. And, and so, um, basically for me to get to meet her right off the bat, it was, she just made it easy. I mean, there was no time to even think about being new because she never made me feel new. So you get on the show and now, I mean, it, it must just be a great feeling when you do, I mean, well, how did you find out that your role was being built? I mean, how did they tell you that, oh, you're coming back again? They just call you and say, hey, you're coming back. We need you tomorrow. How does that work? Uh, it happened very gradually, um, which is actually, it's better than all this network testing stuff. It, uh, I think I've done three or four episodes and they said, um, how about for the first year, we'll promise you 10 episodes. I said, okay, absolutely. Because I was having a great time. Um, and then my second year, I think, another show came along. I did a pilot and, uh, you know, uh, people... <laughs> sometimes get scared of losing something that they like. So then they're like, wait, no, we'll make you a series regular. Um, so basically from their perspective, uh, I think they kind of looked at it like we don't want to lose her. Um, so we're going to add her to uh, the series regular pile because we just want to make sure she that somebody else doesn't get her instead. Now, you're a series regular, so life's great. You're in a big show. Now, when do you sit there and decide that you want to write an episode for the show you're on and how do you go about doing that was it in your contract I know some people have gotten in their contract where they're acting on a show and then they want to direct so when their contract comes up they'll say well he will be on the show but he wants to direct one episode how did it how did you approach that part of right of, of, of getting being able to write an episode uh, it was serendipity, pure and simple. I mean, we, they did the Lab Rats episodes that would center on my character with uh, Wally Langham's character. And a producer that was really behind that was Narain Shankar. Uh, and Narain, um, he's now doing The Expanse on sci-fi. And uh, he's one of my favorite people. I call him Yoda to this day because he basically was the one. I mean, he'd read emails that I, I'd written to him that he thought were funny. And he talked to me a lot about character and some things that I thought. And so I was doing the DVD commentary for some episode, and he just followed me outside. He goes, do you want to write one? And uh, I said yes before uh, before the fear could set in. I was just like, yes, I do. And, uh, and so Wally and I, he let uh, me write one with Wally. It was an episode about our characters, and he wanted us to take a crack at it, which uh, I, I still find amazing to this day. Um, and I had an epiphany. I sat down to write my first scene, and um, I liken it to scuba diving. I think when people go scuba diving, they either get underwater and they freak out or they love it and want to do it for the rest of their lives. I think that blinking cursor on a screen either scares people or they're like, no, I'm going to fill that damn white page. I'm going to fill it. And, uh, and I was the latter. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and then watching these actors, these really wonderful actors, was particularly heady with Lawrence Fishburne. You know, he was saying things I'd written, and it was just... I I was uh, I was amazed. Yeah, I was going to say that must be uh, you know to actually you know it's one thing you know seeing it, but it's people you work with and they're they're reading your lines. It must be a really a great feeling, somewhat surreal because you're like, wait a second, man, Lawrence Fishburne, I'm working with is now doing my scene. That must be awesome. 
It was uh, pretty outrageous. Um, yeah, I remember it being, it was, it was all of them, really, but it just, I remember the moment of, I think it's probably because he was one of the first scenes, but I remember uh, Fishburne doing some of these lines, and I, I just thought, yeah, surreal is a good word to describe it. It was, um, it, it was, it was incredible, and I, I definitely got bitten. I, I wanted to write as much as possible uh, after that. So what then, okay, so you're still acting. Now, when do you, how do you find time for the writing? Were you writing on set after that? And did you, did you try to get a second episode to write or what happened? Uh, I would have gotten a second episode to write, but my character was written off of CSI. Um, after my fifth season, so basically the end of season 10, uh, I was told there would be no more Wendy. So I was out and about again, um, and I landed on Two and a Half Men for a while, and then uh, Charlie wasn't on Two and a Half Men anymore, and uh, and then I had a, a network test that went uh, it went over the space of a month. Um, I had gone in and done a screen test. They called me back to do a studio test. They called me back to do a network test. I was the only one. It was down to me and nobody else for this role. And I was on hold for weeks after that to find out if I got it. And I didn't. And so there was a large part of me that went, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go do network. I don't want to do it. And I sat down and I wrote a pilot. And uh, (laughs) by the grace of God, uh, NBC um, liked it a lot. And they bought it. Um, And so I went through my first development cycle with them and uh, developed this pilot with NBC and it got very close to getting made. There was something by a huge writer that was similar in tone and in subject matter and so that got made instead. But uh, I got a blind deal to write another script, then I sold another script, um, then I sold another pilot, then I sold another pilot, and then I sold a TV movie. So it's uh, it's been incredible so far. It's been an incredible ride. Now, what were the pilots in the movies? Were they comedies? Were they dramas? What genre are you writing? Uh, let's see. The, the pilots were all comedies. They were a half-hour comedy. Some were single-camera, kind of dark, um, and some were sitcoms. And the TV movie is a Christmas movie, but it's kind of an edgy, dark Christmas movie because um, I was asked to write one, and I, I, I wasn't feeling particularly jolly. So <laughs> I thought... Let's write kind of a let's write a badass Christmas movie. So I wrote something a little bit different, but I I do like writing comedy mostly. Um, I just I I think I think that there's comedy in pretty much everything. I mean, I've gone through some stuff in my life, and I've realized comedy is what gets all of us. Laughter is what gets us through these times, you know. And and you can I believe find laughter in almost any situation, almost. Um, and I I draw from that, and so I because I think that way, I tend to um, I tend to be to gravitate towards towards writing comedies. Now, what the Christmas movie will that be on? At what net? Do you know what network that will be on? Uh, I don't know if it's getting made. I sold it to Freeform. Um, I'll let you know when I know. But <laughs> they they have it in their hot little hands. I've gone through two rewrite sessions. Uh, and we'll see. And this is just part of the process, you know. Um, networks buy your stuff, and then they hold your stuff, and then they see when they want to make it, uh, if they want to make it. So, uh, yeah, I, I'll let you know. So you, but so you're acting. I know you know you were in Nikki and Nora, and then on your IMDb it says Riley Para. Is that the last project you've done? Yeah, that was just last month. Um, it was uh, for Tello Films, and it's uh, it's a cool project based on a book. And uh, I play a medical examiner, which is uh, really fun, especially after being on CSI for a while. 
Um, and it's uh, it's supernatural and sci-fi, and uh, and their leading lady, Maram Hassler, is terrific. And, and uh, it was a joy. It was a really fun experience. And it was the first time I'd gone back and acted in a while because I've been busy with writing. So uh, it was nice to go back. Now, are you uh, writing anything right now? Because you also have the documentary you're working on. And I mean, or, and how does your mind work with your writing? Do you just sit down and write something, or do you? Are you one of those people that comes in your mind and you write, or do you actually sit down at your desk and say, I'm going to write today? Well, I do sit down at my desk, but one of the things that I learned also in CSI, I sat in in the writer's room, and I learned how to break a story, and I learned how to outline a story, and I learned I learned structure. Um, they, they were gracious enough to let me sit in and actually learn the craft. So, um, so yeah, I mean, at this point, I... I come up with the idea, but I also, there's a whole pitching deal that you do. Like I had a pitch this morning for a pilot that God, I hope I sell. I love it. And, uh, I was just pitching this morning for an hour. Um, and, uh, we'll see now, now I'm in the waiting period and hopefully if they buy it, then the next step will be to sit down and outline it and send them an outline and get their notes. So, yeah, so your series, nothing is going to, uh, network yet for the series to the pilots you sold, but are you excited for all that laborious work you're going to have if it does get picked up? Because if you're the creator, I know it's, it's long days. Yes, I actually really am. And it struck me. Um, I met a writer who had been working on Grey's Anatomy and, uh, I met her to potentially staff on a pilot that she'd written. And I looked around and as I was talking to her and she, she had acted, uh, early in life and now she was running her own show and as I was suddenly struck with this ambition that I hadn't felt. It's the way that I used to feel about getting roles. And I suddenly looked at this woman and went, oh, I really do want to be doing what you were doing now. So that's an exhaustion that I would welcome. Um, I, I, I also feel really good about it just because I've been acting for so long. I know how to talk to actors. Uh, I know how to treat actors. And I, and I mean both things kindly. Um, you learn a lot and you see what to do and what not to do and I know what type of showrunner I would be um, so I, I I crave it yeah I, I can't wait well that's awesome I hope it happens because you seem very cool. uh, concentrated on it now we have just a few minutes left when when do you expect the documentary to be what's your goal for when to have it done uh, we are hoping um, that the, well, the crowdfunding is going to be done at the end of March, and I also got uh, I got a pledge from the St. Petersburg Film Commission to give me some money to shoot some of it there, which is good because we're shooting a lot of it there. Uh, and I have two corporations that are interested right now in, in potentially getting involved. So once I get all the financing set up, then we're going to decide because um, one of the corporations is pretty big which means it will be significantly more money than I thought. Now they could say no, but right now they're mulling it over and they're excited by the idea. If they say yes, then um, suddenly we'll be going to Australia. You know, suddenly it becomes an international event rather than uh, just a couple different states. So uh, a lot of it depends on that. Um, but as it stands, we'd love to start shooting at the end of the year and we'd love to be done with it by the beginning of next. That's and when awesome. I say beginning, like, you know, not really beginning, I guess more like March or April. Well, that's awesome. You know, I, w I want to thank you for coming on. I mean, we can thank Jimmy Starr because I saw him tweet. I, I do that. I poach guests sometimes. <laughs> I see who he's on and I send them a Twitter. And Jimmy, as I said, I met. And uh, I haven't met, but I just we've got to know each other through Twitter. So uh, I want to thank you for coming on. And now your, your Twitter is at Liz Vassie. This people, it's L-I-Z-V-A-S-S-E-Y. Perfect. So people follow her. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. 
Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 595 episodes up there. Uh, you can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Also, don't forget my cookbook. When I came out of the hospital, I had to change my diet, so stop the salt. Low sodium for cooking for one without killing yourself. You can buy it at stopthesalt.com. You can get it at amazon.com. But if you go to stopthesalt.com, I make more money, and I'll sign it for you. So it's all about me making money. And also, people, I'm uh, doing PR for different uh, actors and writers now and musicians. So if you have any projects, if you want to get your name out there, Creative Stupidity PR is what it's called. Hit me up again, Cooper at coopertalk.net. So people, go follow Liz Vassy. Go put into her fundraiser. I mean, her uh, Kickstarter. Get a Hasselhoff picture. Your friends will love you if you have a Hasselhoff. That's like that's like having the Kramer on Seinfeld. So people, remember, keep listening. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.